Welcome to Catching Curveballs. Join Dr. Muji, a psychology professor at the University of Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabode, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. Before we get started, if you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and coworkers to listen. The good news is that this will never be one of those podcasts where you're embarrassed to share it or even admit that you listen to it. All right, mom, we're back at it. How are you? I'm fine, my daughter, and have a new news item from the American Psychological Association's Six Things Psychologists Are Talking About that I hope will be of interest to you and our listeners. This update is about how, for some of us, we find it to be a huge benefit working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic because we need not commute. However, a CNN article highlights that many people actually find comfort in the routine of commute because it provides a transition between our work and home lives, leading many of us to create quote-unquote fake commutes of walks, runs, and bike rides during the pandemic. According to the article, the increase in fake commute is good for both our mental and physical health. For the article, the author interviewed several psychologists. One psychologist stated that some people actually drive to their office buildings, stay in their cars. They then return to their homes to start work. She believes that those of us who are able to create such separation or transition have a better work-life balance. The vital point is that we should make such separation or transition a habit and prepare the night ahead. Another psychologist shared that transition could be spending time alone or simply changing clothes. And another psychologist rightly stated that, quote, there's some opportunities here to build some new habits or new structures into our day-to-day lives that will serve us well, whether there's a pandemic or not, end of quote. This update is very shocking to me in several ways. First, I thought you'd share with our listeners how you spent your birthday. I was so excited to hear you describe it, especially since a few episodes ago, we teased that one of us had a birthday coming up. So that's surprise number one. Surprise number two is this update you've shared. I hadn't considered the benefit the commute serves in providing a clear and concrete separation between work and non-work life. I suppose maybe it's because I never necessarily felt that separation pre-pandemic. I have to admit that as long as I have my laptop or phone, I can work, so it doesn't matter where I am. I could be home or even, actually, true story, I've been driving home before and had to pull over on the side of the road to join a late, urgent work meeting. Which means that even my commute time isn't protected. But regardless, in this day and age, I figure most people do struggle with drawing this nice line between work and life. 
Granted, there are some jobs where this is far easier to delineate, but for a large proportion of people, it can be tough to separate. But as you spoke, I couldn't help but be more convinced about the value of that commute time. Because even for me, it does usually signal a transition in my focus. At work, my central focus is on, well, my work, but then devoting a block of time to physically leave that space is an indicator that my focus can shift, even if it's only slightly. Listeners, maybe we can test run this together. Let's establish some sort of transition routine, whether it's as simple as changing our clothes or more pronounced and actually commuting to our place of work and then coming back home to start the workday. For our listeners who are still going into work, I suppose the takeaway here is that it's a potentially good thing for you to have a commute. It more than likely doesn't feel that way, but according to this APA update, psychological benefits truly do exist. Mom, I really love that start and have absolutely no shame with it. In fact, the researchers should feel no shame with that line of study, and I won't shame them for suggesting we drive to work. I think I've reached my limit with segue puns. Dear listeners, today we're exploring the word I can't stop saying, shame. Before we get started, this is a safe space and we've all felt it at one point or another. Back to you, mom. What is this concept known as shame? As I typically begin my responses to such questions, my daughter, there are many definitions or descriptions of shame. For one, Some have defined it as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused because of one's recognition or realization that a behavior is incorrect or unwise. Others define shame as a feeling of guilt, regret, or sadness that people have because they know they have done something wrong. Another literary definition of shame is one's ability to feel guilt regret or embarrassment, a feeling of dishonor or disgrace. Shame from a psychological point of view is an unpleasant, self-conscious emotion characteristically associated with a negative evaluation of oneself. Withdrawal motivations and feelings of distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, and worthlessness. No surprise that there are so many definitions for shame, literally and psychologically. I know I've felt shame since childhood, but I only really remember fully appreciating shame as a teenager. Those feelings of humiliation and distress because I've done something that goes against what society deems normal or ideal definitely go way back, but I remember it truly crystallizing when I was in high school. At that time, my class was reading The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and although I didn't have similar life experiences to the protagonist, I remember my main takeaway being, huh, so this is what public and private shame can do. This is what it looks like. There are other themes within that book, but when I think back, that was a critical time point for me in understanding shame, both in terms of feeling shame and being quote-unquote shamed by others. I realize the circumstances in that book don't reflect the everyday experience of others. So mom, what are some symptoms of shame? How do we recognize it? There are some common symptoms of shame. People feel like disappearing. Many a times, shame is a reason why people want to cover their faces, 
feel like vanishing or disengage from another person or situation. People react to shame by feeling angry, by engaging in self-blame or resorting to addictive behaviors. There's a reason the idiom you wish the ground or earth would open up and swallow you up is so popular. When do we start to feel this way? Is there a particular time in which this statement of being swallowed up by the ground becomes relatable? People express primary and secondary emotions. Primary or basic emotions include sadness, surprise, joy, fear, and anger. Secondary emotions are emotional reactions we have to other emotions, and these include enthusiasm, pride, and shame. Shame seems to appear after certain cognitive and social advances in human beings. As a major milestone, researchers suggest that feelings of shame start to occur sometime between 15 and 24 months of age. Classical theorists like Eric Erikson even called the second stage of his eight stages of psychosocial development the autonomy versus shame and doubt stage. And children at this stage of development are ages one to three years. Shame and doubt are the negative horn, pole, or traits of this stage. That's a really early time point. Here I was referencing high school as the time when I fully appreciated shame as a concept, but it turns out I've likely been experiencing such emotions before I was even two years old. And as you explained, if we reference the psychologist Eric Erickson and his theory around our psychosocial development, the stage we start to feel shame is during the second stage, known as the autonomy versus shame and doubt. This second stage of development occurring between about a year and a half and two years, and we just never lose touch with this feeling. It's always right around the corner, it seems. What are some causes of shame? Causes of shame include some cultural standards or customs, including religious prescriptions. Deviance generates disapproval and causes shame, low self-esteem, fear of failure, trauma and abuse, including childhood sexual abuse. Studies have shown that certain health issues, such as mental illness, and sexually transmitted infections evoke feelings of shame. They have also shown that although people usually provide negative feedback with the best of intentions, it often causes unfavorable affective reactions in the receiver such as shame. Studies have also shown that sheltering a child from the truth does not lessen fear or alleviate pain. It only causes feelings of shame among other emotions. When we look at the potential causes of shame, there isn't necessarily a central theme. However, it's this universal emotion that we can start to experience at an extremely young age. Is this for a reason? Does it serve a particular function? Some investigators have suggested that shame helps people regulate social systems and hierarchies. It is responsible for causing strong dislike or disinclination and social rejection, and thus promoting the adherence to social standards or customs. A 2014 study hypothesized that incidental feelings of shame 
can increase cooperation, but only for self-interested individuals and only in a context where shame is relevant with regard to the action tendency. To test this hypothesis, the researchers compared cooperation levels between a simultaneous prisoner's dilemma, where defect may result from multiple motives, and a sequential prisoner's dilemma, where second player defect is the result of intentional greediness. They found that shame positively affected pro-selves. Pro-selves are self-interested individuals. Ashamed pro-selves become inclined to cooperate when they believe they have no way to hide their greediness and not necessarily because they want to make up for earlier wrongdoing. How are guilt and shame related? Shame and guilt are two emotions that are related but different. While people might use both words interchangeably to describe their feelings, there is a big difference between the two. Shame is an inwardly directed emotion reflecting how one feels about oneself, while guilt helps one to understand how one's actions have an impact on others. That makes sense. Guilt involves the consideration of how our behaviors have affected someone else, whereas shame revolves around how we feel about our own behaviors. Both, though, are closely tied to actions we feel violate societal norms or religious standards. What about shame and embarrassment? Those two concepts can be quite tough for me to differentiate. In other words, I still don't actually understand the difference. Shame is a response to an inconsistency between people's behaviors and people's ideals. Embarrassment, on the other hand, is a response to an inconsistency between people's behaviors and people's conceptions of their personas or characteristics, their personal and maybe peculiar standards. This is to say that shame often carries moral overtones, while embarrassment does not. Shame symbolizes a sense of character failing rather than a loss of social status or image. For embarrassment, there is a gap between how one ideally wants people to perceive them and how they believe others actually perceive them. Ah, in this case, morality is the key differentiator. With shame, your behaviors are perceived as having violated some sort of moral code whereas with embarrassment, you aren't living up to the version of you you'd like to. I can still see myself confusing these two in the future, but for now, I can see some sort of separation. Can you help us understand other factors that influence how likely we are to feel shame or even how we experience shame? Several factors, including personality, event-related shame, Conservative social ideology and attitudes influence how likely we are to feel shame or even how we experience shame. Regarding personality, for instance, studies have shown that shame is positively correlated with neuroticism and negatively with extroversion. Gender can also influence experiences around shame. Studies have shown that women are quicker to feel humiliated than men. 
As a result, women are more susceptible to the negative effects of shame, such as low self-esteem and depression. In addition, age can influence our likelihood to feel shame. A 2018 study examined age and the experience of strong self-conscious emotions such as shame. The researchers argued that shame appears prominently in the origin of depressive symptoms and other mental health problems, thus a better understanding of how age affects the strong experience of this negative self-conscious emotion is of particular importance. The investigators studied 30 younger, 30 middle-aged, and 30 older adults and assessed whether there are age differences in the likelihood of strongly experiencing shame within the past five years. They found that older adults were less likely to report experiencing events that elicited shame than younger adults. In other studies, researchers found that adolescents feel shame more intensely than adults do. As a result, adolescents are more susceptible to the negative effects of shame, such as low self-esteem and depression. While there's an added benefit to aging, we're less susceptible to experiencing shame. Very interesting. How do our feelings of shame influence our mental health? People who feel shame readily are at risk for depression and anxiety disorders. Research has shown that people who have a propensity for feeling shame, a trait termed shame proneness, often have low self-esteem, which means conversely that a certain degree of self-esteem may protect us from excessive feelings of shame. Some investigators have found that shame proneness can also increase one's risk for other psychological problems. The link with depression is particularly strong. Dr. Brene Brown has this powerful TED Talk titled Listening to Shame, in which she describes shame as an unspoken epidemic, the secret behind many forms of broken behavior. And in listening to your response to the ways in which feeling shame influences our mental health, I couldn't help but think about how much this aligned with the sentiments behind her talk. Listeners, Dr. Brown's TED Talk is so powerful. Not only is she incredibly engaging to listen to, trust me, you'll chuckle quite a bit, but the key messages are incredibly moving. First, she shares two things she'd recently learned. The first is that vulnerability is not weakness. Rather, it's, quote, emotional risk, exposure, uncertainty, end of quote. It's our most accurate measurement of courage, and to be vulnerable, to let ourselves be seen, is to be honest. The second takeaway pertains directly to today's topic, which is shame. She explains that shame drives two big tapes. One is this tape repeating that you're never good enough, and if you somehow overcome this tape, then another starts playing, which is, who do you think you are? Even more troubling, shame can leave us feeling as if, quote, unquote, I'm sorry, I'm a mistake. Dr. Brown goes on to explain that shame thrives on three things. It needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. But with empathy, it struggles to survive. 
And listeners, this is part of why my mom and I found it so important to devote today's episode to this topic. Shame is something that can transform from an arguably helpful critic to a self-destructive force. As much as it might be normalized or feel familiar to us, it can transform into something harmful that deprives us of happiness and our mental health. Which is why, mom, my next question is an important one. How can we best address shame? Yes, my daughter, your question is an important one. And how best to address shame will depend on which kind of shame. This is because there are two kinds. There's healthy and unhealthy shame. Healthy shame occurs when people make mistakes and they feel that inner principle or belief that they have actually done something wrong that they need to acknowledge, including apologizing if applicable. In that context, shame is helpful and necessary. Ideally, people need to feel shame when appropriate. Context matters because we all need to be able to develop awareness, empathy, and compassion. Healthy shame is beneficial. Then there is unhealthy shame. This has been most of what we have focused on so far. Shame from having made errors in which we personalize these errors. One did not just make an error. One is an error or faulty. If we focus on unhealthy shame, what steps can we take to reduce it? A friend, confident, or mentor can help the person with unhealthy shame to bring into awareness or recollect times when one felt shamed or not acknowledged. Sharing one's shame with empathic or understanding people can be very therapeutic, soothing, and health-promoting. It is important that these friends, confidants, or mentors convey how courageous the person is because they have shared feelings that can make them vulnerable. Nowadays, there is increased shaming online. To cope with this, one must try to avoid bottling up feelings of shame and other related feelings such as anger. Express such emotions if necessary. Shout or cry into your pillow or within a private space like your bathroom. What matters most is to engage in self-care. Get to know yourself better. Maximize your strengths while minimizing your weaknesses. These will make you more resilient. You will be better able to catch curveballs. Really helpful recommendations, mom. And I see what you did there by throwing in the catching curveballs reference. For me, I'm going to circle back to Dr. Brene Brown, this time during an interview she had with Oprah. During this Oprah Life class, Dr. Brown shares that men and women with shame resilience have four things in common. First, they know their trigger. They're mindful of what situations or interactions trigger their feelings of shame. Second, they reality check their triggers. Third, they reach out and share their story. And fourth, they speak shame. This then boils down to three strategies we can all use. The first is a recurrent message on this podcast, and that's self-compassion. Dr. Brown challenges us all to think of how we'd speak to our loved ones, our mother, our sibling, our partner, our child. 
Use the same voice and compassion you'd show them if they were in triggering situations or reacting to those triggers to speak to yourself. Practice that compassionate voice and apply it in a manner directed towards yourself. Next is to reach out to someone you trust. I won't elaborate too much on this since mom, you've already covered it. But ultimately, having someone you can talk through these feelings with is reinforcement to that compassionate voice you should direct inwards. Finally, tell your story, whether it's to your trusted friend, confidant, mentor, or on a social platform with broader reach, share your experience. I realize this can be incredibly tough, but as Dr. Brown puts it, shame can't survive being spoken and being met with empathy. I stumbled across this in another location, but a helpful aspect to this is to highlight the value sharing your shame in a safe place provides. Doing all you can to find your community, whether that's live or virtually, can make all the difference in managing your feelings of shame. All right, mom, I think we're ready for your quote for today. My quote is from counselingdiscovery.com. Healing shame requires a vulnerability to share and let go of the false story of who we think we are. End of quote. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, remember to follow us on Instagram for much more content at Catching Curveballs Podcast. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast. And as always, remember to rate, review, and tell everyone you know about the podcast. We cannot wait to connect with you soon.